welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Fred Turner, who is Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communications at Stanford. And he's the author of several books, including From Counterculture to Cyberculture and The Rise of Digital Utopianism. So welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Lev. Great to be here. Wonderful. So today we're going to be talking about your new book, which is called Seeing Silicon Valley, Life Inside, a fraying America. And it's a beautiful book with more than 30 photographs and essays about the people that you both met in Silicon Valley. Fred, maybe you could start by talking about what this book is. It's a, it's in some ways, it's kind of an unusual book and what you were trying to accomplish with the book. Sure. So, so we started working on the book about four years ago and, you know, it, it kind of came to me as an idea when I had been in Silicon Valley living a few miles away from Google for, you know, about almost 20 years. And I've done a lot of academic work on the mythology of Silicon Valley. You know, the dream that particular heroic individual entrepreneurs have created new technologies transforming the world. And, you know, the fact that they tend to look like Steve Jobs or, you know, um, Elon Musk, they tend to be younger white men. And I knew that the actual Silicon Valley here on the ground was very different. I knew that it was a diverse place, a radically unequal place, and one in which um, the mythology of kind of digital futurism had obscured the actual community that was being built on the ground. And I very much wanted to depict that community. And I was lucky enough to be able to reach out to photographer Mary Beth Meehan, who is known for her large scale civic portraiture. And um, she agreed to work with me. I got a small grant from Stanford and from the Wallenberg Foundation. And Mary Beth came out from New England, where she normally works, and you know, made images of all kinds of different people, you know, the full range of people who live and work in the Valley. So Fred, I'm wondering, who did you meet? Tell me a little bit about some of the people that you photographed. Sure, absolutely. So Mary Beth did the photogra- photography. And you know, I, I'm an academic, right? I, I'm a historian, and I, I write like crazy. But I, but I don't, for that, Mary Beth was, was amazing. We were able to really work closely together. And so she, she stayed here for in her first round. She did two rounds. The first round was about six weeks. And she was out 24-7, and she found her way to all kinds of interesting people. You know, one was a, a guy named Cristobal. Um, Cristobal is an army veteran. He's a security guard for a contracting firm at Facebook. You know, he makes about $20 an hour, which you'd think would be just great money, um, except in Silicon Valley, it's not enough to rent a house. You know, when, he, when she went to make an image of, of Cristobal, went to, to do his portrait, she went to visit him at a house. He gave her an address and she got there and parked the car and it was a nice big house. And, and he said, okay, great, come on around back. And it turns out that he didn't live in the house. He lives in a garden shed in the back of the house. And, you know, think about that for a second. An army veteran with a full-time job at one of the most um, moneyed companies in the world cannot afford a house with plumbing. He lives in a garden shed. So he was one of the folks that, that Mary Beth met. And I should say that you know, there's, there's about 50 people in the book, and each of them has images and a story. So you learn quite a bit about their lives. And we try to, try to capture the full range of lives. You know, another group of people that Mary Beth reached out to were the folks who live in the trailers alongside um, Stanford University. So I teach at Stanford and my my office looks out on the building in which the Google algorithms, the very first Google algorithms were written. And Stanford is a beautiful campus, you know, grassy lawns, red, red tile ceiling roofs, you know, and beautiful tan stone buildings. But when you pedal off campus, as soon as you leave the grounds, you see El Camino Real, which is a main drag in, in Silicon Valley, and there are trailers and cars lining that 
road and people are living in them. And they're not homeless people. These are people with jobs. It is truly astonishing. And so Mary Beth was able to go and meet a number of those folks, photograph them and, and get to know them and their lives. Some were older, some were younger. Um, she was also able to meet you know, a, lot of, a lot of immigrants. 40% of the people in Silicon Valley today were born in another country. And they've come here looking, I think, for the kind of American dream that people have always come to America for. But those dreams get, get really complicated. So um, Mary Beth photographed a couple um, from India, Ravi and Gutami, and they have multiple degrees in biotech and computer science, chemistry, statistics. They studied in, in India and came over here and they make good money, but they're struggling. They have a $3,000 a month, uh, one bedroom apartment. They aren't sure that they're going to be able to make enough money to stay here long haul. And I think that's something that was really consistent across the people that Mary Beth was, was working with a kind of anxiety about the future. You know, Silicon Valley is a very flexible place. It's a very individualistic place, but it's also a place with, I think, relatively little security. It's a bit of a winner-take-all world. And that's pretty scary if you're not one of the designated winners. There are some people in the book that are winners and they're living in, in huge mansions. Yes. <laughs> and I'm wondering if the poverty and the insecurity of some of the people that you interview and you photograph, that Mary Beth photographs, whether that supports the, the lifestyles. And I'm thinking about the work that I haven't read for 20 years by Saskia mm. Sassen, but she writes about global cities. And from what I remember of her work as a grad school, she said sort of like, you couldn't have a Wall Street if you didn't have the South Bronx. Do you think that that's true for Silicon Valley as well? You know, I don't think it is true. I, I think that, that we've um, built a world that looks like that. And we've built a world in which very small numbers of people with very specialized skills can use those skills to accumulate extraordinary profits. But I don't believe that has to be that way. Um, I, you know, when we look back at business in the mid middle of the century, the 1950s, um, which is before the time that Saskia Sassen was writing, you know, we have large corporations that have lots of problems, but their leaders are actually fairly clear that their job as business leaders is not only to make money for their shareholders, but to make a better society for all Americans. And that's the piece that's gone missing here. You know, Silicon Valley is more unequal than I think you might even imagine. There are, um, at last check, about 2018, there were 74 billionaires, that's with a B, billionaires in Silicon Valley. That's about half the world's billionaires. And at the same time, during the pandemic, 40% of the families here were food insecure. They did not know that they had enough to eat on any given day. That just boggles my mind. It just completely boggles my mind. Does it have to be that way? Absolutely not. Facebook, Google, Apple, the headquarters alone, you know, you, 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 you um, take just a little bit of the money that they're making there and you feed the families of the valley. That's something that seems very straightforward to me and very easy to do. And, and so, so, no, I don't think it does have to be that way. Um, I think it, it's also true that, that companies like Facebook and Google depend on a different kind of labor than some of the kinds of labor that Saskia Sassen was, was pointing to. You know, Facebook and Google are extraction industries, extracting patterns of our social lives and then remarketing those um, as data. And that kind of work doesn't necessarily require that the people whose lives you're monitoring uh, be impoverished ones. So, so no, I don't think it's necessary. I also watch mm. a, lot, a lot of basketball. I've never been to Miami mm. before. And, you know, my image of Miami was what they show you on ABC before the game. It's like South Beach. Mm -hmm. And 
I also watch a lot of Golden State Warriors and the image that I have of the Bay Area is also, you know, glittering skyscrapers. And then when you go to these places, you see the kind of poverty that you document in your book. What you show is not all that surprising to me. I I gather that policymakers also see it. It's so interesting. I, I think Silicon Valley has been very good at projecting a particular image of itself mm-hmm. and blinding people, even people who live here, to the actual reality of what's on the ground. You know, Silicon Valley has, its marketers and journalists have projected it as a kind of city on a hill for America. You know, it's an emblem of, of the future. There's a special group of people here with special skills who have all somehow concentrated here and they do amazing and beautiful things that transform our lives. I mean, you've heard this myth, I've heard this myth, it's in the newspaper every day. And that myth, I think, focuses so intently on the the very upper stratum that it loses track of all the folks who make it possible in a daily way. You know, the people who fix your car, who, um, you know, feed your your restaurant, who run the grocery store. Um, those, Those folks don't appear in these other stories of a special place. And this is a really old American habit. You know, my first intellectual affection was the American Puritans, uh, the pilgrims of the 1620s. And I, I always wanted to study them. And so I started down that road a little bit. And, you know, the pilgrims came here believing that God had chosen some of them to go to heaven at the end of the day. And God was going to treat those people here on earth specially because he'd chosen them to go to heaven. I mean, after all, if he'd chosen you to go to heaven, was he going to treat you like crap here on earth? No. So for that community, wealth became a measure of God's love and God's esteem for the people in the community. People who accumulated wealth were thought of as saints. Meantime, of course, Plymouth, Massachusetts was smack in the middle of Native American country. There were a lot of other folks in the community who were not saints, were not Puritans. And those folks were excluded and discriminated against and rendered invisible in the story of the Puritans, the story of the pilgrims. And that kind of work of choosing saints and rendering others invisible defines Silicon Valley today. You know, wealth here serves exactly the same function that it did in Protestant Puritan New England in the 1600s. It is a recognition of some kind of special heavenly ability, a special selection. And the kinds of folks who don't get selected that way, who aren't marked by wealth, are marked precisely like the outsiders of the 1600s were, marked as failures, marked as not fully human, marked as unselected. Now, those markings, of course, tend to correlate with patterns of racial prejudice and patterns of economic prejudice. And that that's very interesting. It is. And I also think it's interesting that you use the word work to make people invisible. So, I mean, you have to actively try to make people unseen. Oh, absolutely. And I, there's a wonderful word that I learned recently. Uh, it's an academic word, but I really love it. And the a, a now deceased critic um, from England, he, he used the word ex-nomination. To ex-nominate mm-hmm. someone is simply not to call them out, not to name them. And when you ex-nominate an individual or a group of people, they disappear from the story. And it looks like you're not doing anything, like they just were never there. But you are actively ex-nominating them. You are actively not including them in the story, not naming them. And that not naming is something that Silicon Valley does beautifully. And you know, let me go even a little bit farther. I, I don't know if you've held an iPhone recently or a Mac. Um, I have an iPhone in my pocket, <laughs> to my shame. Um, you know, my, my iPhone is is the most amazing marvel of, of, of post-human technology. Shiny silver, shiny glass, glittering colors. 
the the people who build that device and the people who take it apart when it's done are nowhere to be seen. They are not part of that. There's nothing there that tells me what hands touched this device, whose ideas were here. It's, it's almost as though it's dropped down from an alien planet. And that's just my iPhone. And that's how you market an iPhone. It's something special and, and post-human and wonderful. But that larger logic of let us erase the hands that made this world so that we can sell its products to the world at large and accumulate wealth for the people who, who run the companies. That logic is everywhere. Right. And that logic has its roots at least going back to the transatlantic slave trade. Oh, absolutely. Very definitely. And, and I think, you know, I, I was trying to point to the Puritans who were not slave owners, at, at least in the, the small group that I looked at in Plymouth, Massachusetts. The, 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 the broader point um, of the slave trade is, is exactly right. You know, um, how to put this? Slavery depended not only on all of the, the patterns of force that, you know, caused people to be captured and transported across the Atlantic and, and, and forced to work here. It also depends on white folks of the period being taught to see people of color as less than human. And you cannot treat another person who you think, as, think of as like yourself the way that white Americans treated black slaves. You just can't do it. And so you have to dehumanize the other. You know, the kind of dehumanization that we saw in slavery, I think, is, is not what I see in Silicon Valley, but I see a different version of it. I see a kind of invisibilization, a kind of rendering invisible, a kind of, and, and in that process of rendering invisible, of favoring technology, of favoring the Steve Jobs and the, the, the Bezos, is a kind of discrimination that has enormously negative effects. It's not slavery, but it's, it's not good either. I said I wasn't surprised by the poverty, but it doesn't mean that your book didn't surprise me in many ways and that I didn't mm. learn a lot. The individual stories, some of the conditions that people live in are, are shocking. And I'm, I'm so happy that I, I read your book. I'm wondering in the process of writing, what surprised you? Yeah, a few things surprised me. So, so making the book was really a joint process with, with Mary Beth Mee, and it's something I, I've never really done before. I've always you know, written books sort of alone and, and just with text, not with images. The way we made this book was that Mary Beth and I met um, for dinner once a week while she was here and often more actually. And we just, we talked about the people she was meeting and the people she was seeing and what their homes were like and their lives were like. And we matched those stories against stories that I already knew from living here. And in some ways I had become a little bit blind to some things just because I do live here and I live a very privileged life. You know, I'm a professor at Stanford and, and mostly I go to my office and I'm in a green lawn kind of world. Mary Beth was seeing a very different world. And so we pushed each other. And I think some of the things that surprised me that she found were um, the pervasive anxiety at, at every level, not just among working folks who, who are living visibly difficult lives, but also at elite levels. You know, we, we have photographs in the book of, of an entrepreneur and his, and his community, some other folks who've done very well in the Valley. And, you know, among those folks, there's a great deal of suffering. Um, there's a couple in the book whose daughter went to the went to a high school in Palo Alto, Gunn High School, which is known for um, its high suicide rate. And she killed herself. And we have a photograph of the note that she left behind. And the note talks about how she she fears that she's not, you know, creative or smart enough to be in this world. And it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, a terrifying, scarring account of the the pressures that people feel, even people with privilege, even people who are going to gun high school, which is one of the best public high schools in America. You know, the, the pressure to achieve, the pressure to succeed, 
it's extraordinarily powerful and I think, I think quite corrosive emotionally. It makes people darn anxious. I think for myself, I see it historically. I see it very much in light of the kind of anxieties that I know that early um, European settlers had in the United States as they arrived in what looked to them like a wilderness, fearing that you know, God had abandoned them. And could they make it? Could they survive? That kind of anxiety pervades Silicon Valley, and it really surprised me when Mary Beth, Mary Beth found it. The other thing that I think um, surprised me perhaps, and, and it shouldn't have, but I think it did, um, was the, 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 the diversity and the persistence of much older communities that I never So for example, there's a, there's a, a long-standing Jamaican community right at the edge of where Facebook is building its headquarters in, in Menlo Park, California. I had no idea, I just simply didn't know. Um, there's a, a, a really large um, and long-lasting religious community in a sort of similar area. You know, these are communities that I, I just hadn't seen, and I thought that was also really interesting. And so, so I was impressed by the way that Mary Beth captured the layers of life here. You know, not just the top, not just the bottom, but all the layers in between. And there were layers there that I'd just never seen. You know, Jefferson says something, I mean, he basically says something like in the Declaration of Independence that people will suffer for only so long and that if things get really, really bad, they will, they will revolt. Are you, mm. are you ever surprised that people will put up with the kind of conditions that we, we force upon them? And I'm wondering if yes, or why there isn't more rebellion? Yeah, that's a great question. I am surprised, but, but, but less so over time. Um, let me talk about why I think there hasn't been rebellion. And, and let me also note that there are communities here that are starting to speak up and push back. There's a unionizing effort at Tesla. Um, Silicon Valley Rising is a group of tech workers who are pushing hard against the tech companies, advocating, among other things, for immigrant rights. Um, certain elite tech workers, meaning engineers who have traditionally not organized at all, have begun to organize and to leave companies and to protest. So, so there is some protest here. I think it, the, the, the same myth that renders everyday life invisible here also makes it very difficult to see yourself as someone who ought to be protesting. The, the, the mythology here is one of individual genius, individual entrepreneurship. You have an individual opportunity to go all the way to the top, but if you don't get there, that's on your individual self. And that view of the world as individual centered, anchored as it is in American history, blinds us to the sort of systemic pressures that really shape life here. It blinds us to the inequality that is structural, that is, that is built by people in large firms capturing large amounts of wealth and skewing regulatory regimes so as to keep that wealth. You know, that, that is what's going on here. But if, it, if you get up every morning and you say, gosh, you know, I'm just not Steve Jobs, I guess I'm just not smart enough, then it feels like a personal problem to be solved with therapy, not, not revolution. And, and that's, that's, that's part of the challenge here. So Fred, this is a little bit outside of the purview of your book, but I know you've written a lot about, about technology and the impact mm. of technology on, on democracy. I don't know if you've ever read Neil Postman. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a hero of mine. <laughs> he's a hero of mine, too. You know something really exciting? I, I got to teach his grandkids. Um, oh, fun. Very cool. His son came for parent-teacher night once and, and gave me, after learning that I was a big fan of, of Postman's gave me one of his manuscripts, a copy of one of his manuscripts was oh, something so amazing. Treasure but that, treasure that. I, I, I totally do. I, I love Postman. Um, you know, we read, we read Postman in ninth grade. They gave us how to watch, how to watch TV news in ninth grade, <laughs> which was pretty neat. But I wanted to ask whether you think, going back to the question of, of rebellion, 
Postman and, and McLuhan sort of posit that some forms of media filter and change the message. The medium, in this case, say, of the phone, helps support right-wing ideology and helps dampen mm -hmm. revolt. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, it's really hard to have complex conversations in a few hundred, in a few hundred characters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on TV as well. Do you buy that? Oh, very much. Yeah, I, I, I think I do it a little bit differently than Postman does it. Um, you know, Postman was onto something really important in the 80s. He wrote that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was about how entertainment culture was making it more and more difficult to have serious, rational debates. I think he was very right about that. And I think that we're living in the, the wake of an extraordinary transformation, a kind of architectural reconstruction of the techniques by which we associate with each other. You know, in my grandmother's day, she grew up in rural Texas, you know, she associated with the people who were right around her physically because she didn't have a telephone, didn't even have a radio, and just talked to the people around her. Today, my life, I, I associate with all kinds of folks in person, other folks through email, other folks through Twitter, other folks just in my imagination by watching them on the screen. And in a world of that many diverse media inputs, what you start to see is an economic pressure for people to diversify their views and to capture your attention by being extreme and polarizing. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what we're seeing. I think we're, we're seeing people finding ever, ever narrower niches in which to be ever more extreme so as to capture what slivers of attention they can. And that process is occurring at a kind of big corporate level, but also at a kind of interpersonal level. You can see it perhaps among your friends on, on Facebook, depending on who you hang out with. I, I certainly see it sometimes in mine. I, I saw in an interview you you did. You said that you you wanted to work with with Mary Beth in part because to go back to to media because there were limitations to academic mm -hmm. writing and maybe even to and I don't know if this is what you meant, but to yeah. writing in general. And there were some things that only photography yeah. could illustrate. So I'm wondering I'm wondering how this project. Maybe it's an obvious answer, but I I'm interested in, in your thoughts. How this project was different. Um, having photographs as opposed to sort of this, the more traditional academic work. Yeah, what a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that because I think it's really important. So the academic work that I usually do is aimed mostly at other academics and it, it's very analytical. And um, a lot of that is, is that work is oriented to me figuring stuff out and then writing an argument about that stuff. So when you encounter one of my other books, you'll find that I'm, I'm arguing hard and there isn't i don't try to leave a lot of room for folks to, to room and come to their own conclusions i i'm trying to direct your conclusions in with images we can show you the world that we inhabit in all its complexity without necessarily demanding that you see it our way you know we can set a table for you and then you can decide what kind of diet you want to put together what kind of meal you want to put together from the buffet that we've set and I, I think that's a really wonderful way to work because it lets people come to the book from wherever they are. You know, we've given talks about the book here in Silicon Valley. It's been really interesting. You know, just in, just this week we had one where uh, one of the members of the audience has said, hey, you know, I've lived in Silicon Valley since 1983 and I've never seen any of these people. And uh, he was a tech, Mary Beth very kindly said, well, you know, we're all busy, but. Um, <laughs> um, and then. By the same token, uh, just a little bit later, we did another talk. Um, the first question was, wait, I'm a librarian here in, here in Palo Alto. I see these people all the time. What's new about this? And so people come to this book from, a, from very different places. And photographs let you come close to people, 
look long at them, hold still with them, give them the time they need, different than internet time, different than TV time, give them the time and let them speak to you wherever you are. And I, I think that's something that I haven't found myself able to do in my academic work and, and, and that photographs do beautifully. And I've just been so happy and so lucky to be part of this. Thank you.